Welcome to the Sales Compensation Show, where we share the latest sales performance research, insights, and solutions through in-depth discussions with industry experts. So put that spreadsheet away, grab a beverage, and enjoy the conversation. I'm your host, Justin Lane. It's my pleasure and honor today to have as my guest, Paul Ryman. I've known Paul for a number of years. We initially met at a sales compensation roundtable in Chicago uh, that Paul was hosting. He had invited myself and a colleague to come up and speak around sales compensation administration processes, how to benchmark them, how to improve those processes. We've certainly kept in touch over the years, and I'm always interested in meeting up with them annually at the World at Work Spotlight on Sales Compensation Conference to get his takes on whatever hot topics are at hand. Paul, welcome to the show. Thanks, Justin. Good to speak again, for sure. Could you introduce yourself to the audience? Sure. I'm a data nerd who likes to apply that skill in as many settings as possible. I'm a recovering management consultant and a recovering HR practitioner all at the same time. I've recently started my own company called Novo Insights, which is all about helping organizations use data to make better people decisions. It's the third act of my career. I spent 10 years as a consultant firm. That's where we first. And during that phase of my career, I understood or I saw how consultants and customers needed to collaborate differently to really come up with the right answer. I then took on HR leadership roles in three different companies at Morningstar, at Commvault Systems, and at CDK Global. And now I'm re-entering the world of, of giving advice and hoping I can be a better advisor now that I've really done the work for the past 10 years as well. My mission in life, my passion in life is all about data. I drive my wife crazy, always looking for numbers and looking for information behind the story. And I can't wait to apply that to more of my customers in the future. So recently on LinkedIn, you put up a multi-part post and you titled each one of those posts an act. And you talked about the three acts of your career. You just mentioned this is the third act, the starting of your own consulting company. Let's jump back to act one. When you're in the consulting world, what sort of things did you learn from a data perspective when it came to sales compensation? How did you apply that when you help companies out with guidance and advice? Yeah, it's a great point. I mean, I think, and just to put a time box around that, maybe to age myself slightly, right? We're talking about the sort of 2000 to 2011-ish vintage of the world. And, you know, phrases like big data didn't exist. The concept of artificial intelligence was science fiction only. So the data work in that stage of my career was just raw analytics. Like, how do we understand what's really happening? Who are the people earning the most? Are they the ones who perform the best? You know, are they in certain territories? Very descriptive in nature, just to make sure that the solutions being deployed had some fact behind them. But there was nothing prescriptive <laughs> at all about sort of the data that could be done. It just wasn't possible you know, with the technology sort of available at that time. I did some big data work towards the end of that time before it was called big data, and it was just too far ahead. People didn't get it. But really, then it was all about understanding the composition of performance mm -hmm. and figuring out the right way to pay for that performance. That's what really all of the data was about at that stage in the game. And just understanding it uh, was the first part. Gathering and understanding the data that you had was a challenge for most companies at that stage of the game, for sure. Yeah, I think that remains a challenge for a lot of companies. It's always amazing to me, you know, over the course of my career, working with a variety of size clients in different industries, 
where I kind of came to this revelation that data is always bad. And the ability, you know, companies are on this vast maturity curve of their ability to go gather data into a single repository to do the type of analysis that you're talking about. And it's interesting, I think, as you describe, you know, 10 years ago, no big data tools, you know, AI being uh, still in movies and books, and, ma and maybe a little bit still today. How much of the data that you're looking at when you're thinking about performance was rearward looking versus trying to be productive? predictive and prescriptive and looking forward and out to the market. Yeah, I think it's it, it was and continues to be mostly a what has happened lens, mm -hmm. right? So understanding what occurred and using that to inform some projections or assessment of what could happen, but not a lot of prediction. I mean, prediction remains sort of the hardest thing to get right in data. You know, some innovative work is happening for sure in that space, and some companies are figuring it out. But my work has been in the types of companies I work in, which are smaller, sort of mid-size, often resource-starved organizations, you know, that's where just understanding what happened is is a challenge enough, for sure. And one of the things I find interesting is we do sales compensation design projects, and and you look at the past. You know, I think it's sometimes easy to find patterns in the data and find a correlation, right, of A versus B as you get your two axis points on a graph. But the causation, the causality, right? Did A actually make B happen? Have you ran into this idea or thought as you work with data over the course of your career? Totally. I mean, this is, I mean, I, one of my catchphrases over my career is that there's no such thing as a best practice. And because okay. it's, what I find is, well, I mean, no offense sales leaders who end up listening or watching this, but like, because it worked doesn't mean it's always going to work. So, yep, we threw that $1,000 per account spiff out there and look at how many more accounts we got. Sure, it may have been because you told everybody you care about finding that thing that also produced a different outcome. It may not have been the money. Maybe 500 bucks would have worked. Maybe, you know, like we don't have a rigorous test environment to control the experiment and say what really made the difference. Was it the management attention? Was it the pay amount? Was it the fact there was some pay? Who knows, right? So I, I find that causality is something most cannot prove. That said, I don't know if that's the burden either, particularly within sales compensation. Like if, if we can produce a more productive sales organization, if we can produce higher achievement through a set of interactions, it'd be nice to know which one caused it, but let's not get too caught up in like, well, was it the $600 versus $500 spiff is a better outcome? Like, no, we got what we needed. Let's not worry so much. Like, I, I like to keep an eye on the big picture, but certainly, you know, causality is very difficult to prove in a world of human beings. Yeah. I think it's interesting, you know, to think about that idea of you don't have a good control versus test environment. I think about other business disciplines, marketing as an example, where it's pretty easy to do A-B testing of everything from, you know, what makes a good blog post to open rates for different, you know, email headers type of thing, but more difficult to do when it comes to compensation because you kind of, you know, maybe you get one bite at the apple as opposed to you want to dial in and refine over time, look at sensitivity of payment amounts, communication, messaging, it's complicated, right? There's a, a lot of things, a lot of variables in, in play at once. Totally. I even had a client at one point that had a very decentralized selling organization. So I'm like, this is the perfect time to do some testing. 
because, you know, regions didn't talk to one another. There was just enough. It was a large organization, so a lot of different account segmentation layers. It just made it hard for people to really know what was going on in other parts of the company. Like, this is a great chance to test before you deploy. Let's try it in one region and see what happens. That's just a tough call for most sales leaders or HR leaders to make. Well, well, what if it's really good? Then I've disadvantaged everybody else by not giving them access to the test. Yeah. And it just, you get a little trapped. So, you know, it's difficult to produce the kind of experimentation that you can do with an, an anonymous set of customers, a bunch of. Yeah, I think gather data points over time, right? Maybe build up something around best practices, fictional or not and uh, start to apply that for your other clients? Stories that work, I believe in, right? It's more the belief oh, okay. that this is the thing to do is where I don't know if that's really relevant. I mean, I've worked at three different companies as an in-house you know, compensation leader. Sales comp was part of my world in all three of them. And in a couple of circumstances, doing the exact same thing in company C versus company B produced a completely different outcome. Just because the context, the and these are all technology sellers at the end of the day, but the rest of the management ecosystem, the climate, the specific customer sets were different enough that it didn't make the exact same solution. Yeah. Yeah. Corporate context, I agree. Yeah. <laughs> 100% important. And it was interesting at the recent uh, sales compensation conference, you know, I heard the term, you know, body of knowledge around sales compensation, that it's very well defined now, you know, after 25, 30 years of folks uh, doing it. And, you know, from some of the projects I've recently worked on, even the idea of the difference between sales cultures and the buying experience and that they're trying to deliver to their prospects and clients dictated, you know, how we thought about a recommendation at the end. And you couldn't just follow, you know, a, pattern, a cookie cutter pattern of, what you said, work for company A, should work for company B. Similar industry, similar go-to-market strategy, but very different companies. Totally. And, you know, while I think there is a pretty established body of knowledge out there around sales comp, none of it is was done in a world where everybody was an inside sales rep for a year. And now there's a different customer buying uh, expectation, right? Or set of preferences. Uh, at least I believe. I'm seeing that with some companies I'm working with now where... What does an inside sales role really mean anymore when there's a lot more virtual selling? Customers are willing to write checks that are a lot bigger than they used to write without seeing someone face-to-face. -face. The SaaS world has matured to the point where SaaS-like practices have invaded other industries in terms of how you buy, how you think about what should, what should I sign up for. So I think a lot of those body of knowledge things that worked you know, in my act one of my career in the 2000s may be completely irrelevant from 2022 on, given those other realities. Not to mention a completely different labor market <laughs> that is just so unpredictable and uncertain at this unique point in time. You know, how does that intersect with these new customer buying realities as well? So I think we're going to see a lot of challenge to that body of knowledge. Will there be some relevance? For sure. But if we're relying on what worked in 2002, when I was literally consulting to the yellow page industry... Like, it's just not all that relevant anymore. There's probably some tips and tricks, but by and large, that's not what's shaping today's world of sales compensation. Yeah, fair enough. Let's move on to act two of the career. Sure. Tell me about that. I made a decision at one point. I was you know, grateful to the leaders I had at the end of act one who understood that it was time for me to do something different, uh, partly for family reasons. 
or mostly for family reasons. And I had a, a client who created a job for me. So I took an in-house HR leadership role, first for Morningstar, and then uh, in basically three-year increments, I would move from company to company, Morningstar to Commvault Systems to CDK Global, uh, which is recently acquired by private equity. So in all those places, I was the compensation leader, uh, among other functions, HR ops, other things. But compensation was my core. And working with, you know, the other parts of the sales comp ecosystem, right? It's never just HR. It's finance, sales ops, if it exists, things like that. So a good chunk of my time was spent creating the, the governance model, the collaboration model around how does good sales comp work get done, right? Mm -hmm. I can add value in this space. People in sales can add value in that space, obviously. You need finance to be on board. I mean, all the right stakeholders. So at each stop in the journey, a key outcome was just defining how does good work get done in this space? Because that's hard, right? It, it's not, there's no single owner of the sales comp plan and just coming up with the right rules around, you know, how do we, how do we work together? It was a, a key part of my work for that last 10 years. Yeah, that, I think companies, uh, in my experience, some work well with that kind of cross business functional team. And they're all kind of marching in the same direction, rowing in the, you know, in the same direction, uh, maybe from some mandates handed down from the CEO. Other companies, more of a struggle. You know, there's some, some natural friction, I think, between sales and finance when it comes to plan design. Then certainly uh, quotas uh, when you get to that, uh, that portion of the planning year. Any thoughts or advice on if, if somebody's out there in an organization where maybe they're an HR leader and they're trying to build a more collaborative environment. Any tips or tricks you learned in from Act 2? Absolutely. I think one is because it's a little bit different, right? Just based on the culture of an organization, where the data sits, the degree of control that certain functions sort of naturally have through other governance mechanisms. Just being clear on what is our way of doing it. There is no right answer. I don't believe that, that like HR always needs to own the incentive design. No, I don't think that's true. I'd be happy if anybody wants, reach out, send me an email. There's a matrix that I use that says, well, of the sales comp design process and of the sort of execution model, like through the year, who's doing what? Just to make sure it's clear who's on point. Because if, if you don't agree up front, whose responsibility it is or who's involved, of course there's going to be friction as you're trying to do it. So it's an easy conversation to have, like, hey, let's just talk about how we're going to work together. And then we all have a consistent set of expectations. That's, it's so easy, but it's, that was the biggest lesson learned, is just be clear who's on point for what. My second big lesson learned, uh, and this is really geared more towards sort of the HR folks in the audience, is invest in understanding your sales cycle go on a ride along with a sales leader <laughs> or a sales rep, even just to understand the terms, the, the way that customers interact. It adds a ton of value when you think about how much to pay and how to pay. So invest in that. You've got to take that first step. You can't wait for your salesperson to invite the HR guy out on a call. They're not going to do it. You own that sort of interaction to sort of understand and go be a customer if you can, if you happen to be in an industry where that's possible. You know, CD, CDK is a good example. Like they sell, uh, you know, software and services to auto retailers. So I happened to need to buy a car early in my employment. So I really got a chance to understand sort of that customer interaction. That was insightful. And it really helped me build the right relationships with the sales leaders, with sales ops, with some credibility that I 
hey, I'm from HR, I'm here to help. Like, no, I actually do understand what <laughs> what we're trying to solve for. Yeah, I love the idea of the ride along, listen to some calls, visit some clients, be a customer if you can. That's that's awesome. I think that you know a lot of HR teams will focus on the job family, the pay bands, the benchmarking, but maybe you know stop with that. You know where I say that maybe not. I'll call it a lack of understanding or maybe empathy to what is the true level of of prominence or control for that particular role. So you can start thinking about you know what are good metrics. Uh, and measures that, that go in the plan when you're getting down to that decision-making process. Yeah, and if you think about, you know, the sort of typical HR role within sales comp starts with how much to pay, right? The benchmarking around mm-hmm. the value of a job. You know, we've all worked with enough of those surveys and the ways of gathering that data. There's a judgment call on, well, what level is this role? Like, Years of experience is not a great proxy for that really anymore. <laughs> so it is around prominence, around decision making around your you know ability to be successful that's a judgment call and if we if we think that the data is going to tell us this is a you know a radford level four or level three good luck like the data doesn't just tell you that and if you are then you're doing it the wrong way there's an understanding of what what is the nature of this talent and you don't get that until you see it at least that's my belief um no offense sales leaders but you always tend to think your talent is higher than it tends to be on the Redford scale. And HR people tends to think it's lower than it is because they default to other measures. So you have to build that common language around what are they really doing? How does the sales cycle really work? And what skills are needed to be successful? Let's dig a little bit deeper into benchmarking. I'm usually on the other end of that conversation from the HR side. How, with the recent changes, and I think trends, right, towards sales being more remote, more inside sales versus field sales. I think that was a trend that certainly got accelerated during the pandemic. How important is that geography cut when it comes to recruiting and retention versus paying for people's performance and letting that kind of dictate where they sit within that range? Yeah. What I'm seeing, and I I actually just did some fresh research on this for a, a customer I'm working with now, most selling organizations are giving up on the concept of geography. There's one pay ban for the role mm-hmm. um, or one rate for the role because it's more about productivity. Look, if you're going to bring in $2 million in quota retirement, that's worth X to me. <laughs> I kind of don't care if you happen to choose, you know, Iowa is your place of living versus Chicago, whatever. You're talking to the customers through Zoom frequently enough. It's not about where you, doesn't mean everybody's, of the organizations that I had pulled for that, you know, research for that client, most had moved to a single rate of pay for a job. I think that's happening in non-sales families is the same, although sales is a few years ahead because there was more virtualness and spread across the country and, you know, in a sales force than with other organizations pre-pandemic. But I'm seeing geography matter less and less going forward. And I can't imagine that that's going to go away. <laughs> I think it's going to be less relevant given pay transparency laws in different places and whatnot, like, you know, just hire somebody and pay them, you know, a rate of a, a comp cost to sale that you're comfortable paying and move on. Sure. <laughs> That's where I think we're going to land. I think recently in one of your posts on LinkedIn, I just used the term pay for performance and you kind of counter to that term and said promote for performance. Could you tell the the folks listening, like, how should they look at that differently? 
Yeah, I mean, the premise here, and look, as a comp practitioner, I, you know, if everybody had a dollar for every time I said pay for performance in the last 10 years, you know, they could retire off of my own words, because that's what we're all solving for in the world of compensation. The problem I see is we measure that we're too myopic about it, right? So in this merit cycle, we need to pay for performance. In this quarter, did we pay for performance? And while that's important, your employees don't always just see it that way, right? If I think about over the course of my career, I think I was paid for my performance, but in most cases, it was because I got that next job or I I learned something and was positioned to get another job, right? So even within a company, you know, this quarter's incentive, maybe that rep had a rough quarter, but over time, if they're a good rep, they should do fine. They, they should you know, go beyond OTE. They might be the one who moves to that next level individual role. If they're the right type of person, they move into that management role. But you, know, you have to zoom out a little bit to really see performance in a bigger context. Because I don't think we can define performance all the time this quarter or this decision. Um, that was the premise of that blog post is just take a bigger perspective don't judge your commission plan because it had a rough quarter in 2020. Everybody had weird data in 2020. Probably wasn't the commission plan. It was a pandemic that nobody expected, right? Over time, do we feel like great performers win under this plan? You know, tactically, I used to say, give me 12 months worth of data to sort of understand what's going on. Now I ask for more because I, um, you just need to have more of perspective to really get what's going on within an organization. Too much changes in too much noise occurs in, in a performance cycle, you know, within a quarter or six months. So you want to smooth it out with a longer perspective. That's right. And understand that paying for performance doesn't always mean this commission check. You know, somebody who gets a big equity grant because they did a great job or positions themselves, even though they're maybe an average performer by quota attainment, but they've got all the right capabilities to be a great people leader. You're still paying for performance over time right? It's, they just weren't a quota deliverer. They didn't need to be a top 10 percenter if they're more of a people leader. Uh, you know, different, different topic for a different day, right? But like, sometimes you want to promote folks that aren't quantitatively high performers in a role. But if you zoom out, you do see over time, those, those good contributions to the organization get rewarded, just not in the form of pay me now, in the form of a promotion. You touched on something that I think has always been a, a interesting conversation point with a lot of sales leaders, this idea that, you know, should top performers move from an individual contributor role into a management role? And I think a lot of the data over the years has shown that looking across a lot of people, maybe not always the best idea, but thinking about it individually, there's obviously going to be some top performers that are going to be good managers. But again, this idea that maybe if they're not top performers, maybe they're better suited to be a people manager. Have you found this in the course of your career, this to be true, not true? For sure. I mean, I we should also not assume the opposite, right? There are some great individual contributors that make excellent managers and people leaders. But if you think about what adds, you know, incremental value as a leader is not the ability to close the sale. <laughs> it's the ability to teach somebody how to close the sale, to mentor and guide them. And high performers tend to be really good with other high performers, but that's not where you want your sales manager spending time. You want your sales manager spending time with the core and those that are, you know, ramping up in role. And that's a mentorship. That's a teaching. That's a supporting role, not a go land the big fish role. So just, 
you know, you can have great performers that are good at that, but it's, you want to be careful about what are those success criteria that get, you know, promoted in, in the form of taking on leadership positions for sure. Yeah. Well, let's shift to act three, right? So you mentioned a little bit about the new company. Tell me more, like what inspired you to say, hey, I'm going I'm to go hang my shingle, get back into to consulting and move into this third act. Totally. So I think a lot of it is what I see is we're drowning in data. There's so much data out there. Right? I contrasted earlier from, you know, act one of my career, just getting access to basics was was value add. Now everything is measured. Everything is yeah. tracked. Maybe too but much there's not data. a lot of too much data. I yeah. agree. So it's where do you get insight from the data and HR organizations, people organizations in particular want to be more metric driven, but there's just too many metrics. And I find that organizations are chasing this, the shiny object and don't necessarily know how best to work with it. Where do I start? What are the ones that matter? You know, what I, the feedback, when I really thought about what do I want to do when I grow up, the feedback I hear is, look, Paul, you know, you tend to have a, a good eye for something that's, that matters. I'm like, all right, well then how do I, how do I do more of that? Right. I'm, I'm big right now on, you want to form careers around what you really love, not necessarily just what pays you a lot. And I really love finding that hidden nugget of insight in the data. And I just think now is a, a unique time where access to data has never been greater, but the capability and the, you know, the desire to really understand what do I do to add value from that data is where I want to play. So that was the premise behind creating, you know, a place where I can engage with customers to do that, to really understand the data they have, formulate key insights from it and help them course or craft a course of action, you know, to make impact from those insights. And if people wanted to follow your thoughts and insights and learn more, where would they go? Absolutely. I am a voracious LinkedIn networker. So for sure, look up Paul Ryman on LinkedIn. That's a great place to stay connected with me. The name of the company is Novo Insights, spelled exactly like you expect. So NovoInsights.com uh, is another place where you can see what we're up to and, and how, we're, how we're thinking about the world. We're fresh, just started um, working with some partners now to sort of really craft the vision behind it and uh, formalize some offerings to come to market here soon. Outstanding. Well, best of luck in, in that venture. I'm sure it's going to be successful. Thank you, Justin. So we talked a little bit before we started recording about, you know, what I see as a, a hot topic right now. I even use the term, I think, holy war, right? Because I think depending upon who you talk to, people are going to take, strongly take one side or the other. And it's this idea of, should we pay people for performance in a selling role? Or should we pay them to the activities that maybe shows up in the data that's going to lead them to the performance. I saw a recent study from a behavioral economist that tends to point that, you know, the, the research data in a university study environment would show that, that paying for inputs is maybe more effective. Any thoughts? Which side of that, uh, that battle would you take? Yeah, I'm reserving the right to not pick a side yet. And it's partly because I'm also skeptical of sort of the university research setting and its applicability to the real world, for lack of a better word. But I see the validity in it, right? I've been a follower of the work of Dan Ariely uh, at Duke for years and years and years, who basically challenges a lot of the premises that we have around incentives and how they really work psychologically. I think there's validity to it. 
And as a result, you know, paying for the activity may make sense because if you really believe in emotion, right, here are the steps that we take to get to that outcome. Well, then if we pay for those steps, you are directing to the right outcome without some of the pollution that can occur when you just pay for the outcome, right? If somebody got lucky and that deal just closed without having to do any work, well, you don't pay for it if you've paid for the the inputs rather than the the output, you know, or the gaming of the gaming of the plan, which we all like to talk about, right? It's harder to game inputs, depending on the input you pick, of course. So I think there's validity to it. I, I'm not one who's going to recommend yet that you jump ship and say, let's just pay for activity. But I do see the validity. And I, you won't hear me profess you never want to pay for activities because I don't think that's true either. I think there is a space where being very clear about what you want someone to do is important. And that thing you want them to do may just be an activity. And as a result, that may be worth creating the right incentive structures around. All right. Well, thank you for straddling the fence. A great consulting answer <laughs> of it depends. I didn't say it depends. I just said there's validity to both sides. We will check in again in the future. That's right. I'd love to see more workplace examples, right? So, I mean, Absolutely. it's, you know, bridging the gap from academia into the, into the corporation. 15 years ago, I worked with a company who did not pay commissions to a sales force. It was a salary-only organization. And I sat there going, how in the world does this work? But it did, right? And like they took a theory and put it into practice and were quite successful with it. I'd love to see if there is somebody out there who really does more pay for activity and how does it compare? Not in an academic setting, but in a, in a selling organization. So hopefully we can find that person by listening to this podcast and reach out to either Justin or I. We'd love to learn from you. All right. Two closing questions, Paul. First one is, who in the world of sales comp would you most like to take to lunch? I mean, Justin, I'd love to take you to lunch. Uh, it's been a long time since <laughs> we've actually eaten a meal together. But no, I think, uh, as I mentioned, I'm a big fan of the behavioral economists in this world. Uh, Dan Ariely is one who's not directly in the sales comp space, but I'm really interested in sort of the psychology of motivation. And I think there's lessons to be learned. So I... So many fascinating stories would come from someone like that who's seen a yeah. lot of experiments in this world. Well, that's one of the things I've mentioned quite a bit in the last 12, 18 months is that I feel like back, like when you're Act One, early 2000s, that we were still treating sales compensation like a math problem. And, you know, coming up with individual commission rates, you know, based upon a quota, somebody carries a bigger number, it's a smaller rate, but it force fits, you know, the, the total target at goal. And then, you know, two decades down the road, I feel like that, at least in my opinion, there's a much more humanistic approach, you know, to design to say that, you know, it is trying to influence behaviors and there is a person on the other end of that plan. And it's still, you still have to try to solve for the math to some degree, but I don't think you can ignore that there's people involved and not just numbers. For now, right? Until the robots take over and, uh, yeah. and do all the work for us. But yeah, I mean... Sales people, you know, engage in things in different unique ways. And, you know, what one values and what another value are not going to be identical. They're humans. As much as we like to personify and put a stereotype on salespeople, they're not all the same. You know, and really understanding that intersection of psychology is, is critical. Yeah. And the, the robots are coming. <laughs> Last question. I'm a big reader, maybe obvious or not obvious by what's behind me right now. <laughs> is there a book? 
about either sales management or business in general that you would recommend uh, people take a, a look at and get some ideas from? Totally. I think, you know, given my interest in data and how the data works, you know, anybody who's in the sales compensation space, I need, I think needs to be a better storyteller around data. So I'm a huge fan of uh, Cole Knoflick, uh, KN at the beginning. She's got a whole firm around storytelling with data. She's got a couple of fantastic books to really understand how to consume and then work with the information that you have available to you. That's always my top recommendation for anybody this day and age, more general business, not so much sales management, because there's just more and more data around us and you have to be able to consume it smartly and tell the story around it. So that's definitely high on my rec list uh, for anybody. Awesome. Well, hi, Paul. I think we're at the end of our time together today. I just want to say thank you so much for coming on the program and sharing some thoughts and ideas with us today. I really appreciate that you were able to participate. Thanks, Justin. Thanks for having me. It's been fun. The Sales Compensation Show was brought to you by Forma AI, the world's most advanced sales compensation solution. To learn more about how Forma AI makes sales comp more valuable to your business, visit forma.ai. Find us by searching for sales compensation in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or anywhere else podcasts are found. And make sure to click subscribe so you don't miss a single episode. On behalf of the team here at Forma AI, thank you for listening and stay smart out there.